Our scripture reading is from Amos chapter 5, verses 10 through 12 and 21 through 24. This is found on page 767 and 768 in the Pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, please take one as a gift from us. They hate him who reproves in the gates, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of, ga- of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins, you who afflict the righteous, who took a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Yeah, thanks, Krista, for, uh, for reading scripture and welcoming us. Uh, my name is Bill Gorman. I'm the campus pastor here at the Brookside campus, and it's great to see each one of you here this morning. Thanks for coming, uh, especially if you're newer. This is your first time. I know it's not easy uh, walking into a new church or any church uh, for the first time, so thanks for doing that. Thanks for being here with us. I hope you, you do feel welcome uh, here among us at Christ Community. And want to begin our time uh, just asking for God's help as we read and study his word together. So I'd love to pray and ask him for that uh, right now as we, as we come to study this passage that uh, Chris has read for us. So Father in heaven, you are a God who gets things done by speaking. Um, you created the world uh, by speaking. You've made promises to us by speaking. And so to encounter your word is to encounter you in action, to encounter you speaking to us. And so I pray uh, that as you speak to us through um, your word by the power of your spirit, that we would, uh, would receive and be changed and challenged um, by it. I pray that for myself and, and for every one of us here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it has been uh, an incredible week in Kansas City, hasn't it? I mean, to be going from uh, coming back to the World Series for a second time, uh, to get there by coming back from behind game after game, uh, and then last Sunday, winning it all. Uh, and then the parade celebration on Tuesday. Uh, I mean, an incredible time. 800,000 of your closest friends uh, there. I mean, what an incredible day. Uh, we were there, Rachel and Lucy and I went, along with uh, a couple of friends from our community group. And I have to say, it was one of the most incredible uh, and, for a few minutes, terrifying experiences of my life. Uh, we arrived pretty early. We took the bus from right from here in Waldo, just jumped on the max and took it down to, to Maine by the Federal Reserve Building. We walked down the end of the street. So we got a, a great spot right at Pershing and Maine, kind of in front of Union Station. And we were there early and there was people there, but it wasn't too crazy crowded. And so at one point, um, we had our friends save our spot with a chair. We said, we're going to walk across the street to Union Station and we'll come back and then we'll trade places and you guys can go check out what's going on over there. Well, we hadn't been in Union Station for probably more than 30 minutes. By the time we walked out, the crowd had grown exponentially. And so as we began to try to make our way back to our spot, 
Uh, it took us like 30 minutes to cross the street and get back over there. And, and this is a point where you see, I'm not a claustrophobic person. I don't have problems with crowds. I'm fine on airplanes. But there was a moment when I had Lucy on my shoulders and Rachel was with me and we were being pressed in on every side. And, and I literally started, my heart rate was elevated by breathing. And I was like, this is what it feels like to have a, a panic attack, to know that if I wanted to leave here, there's no way that I possibly could. Um, I mean, in the end, we did make our way back to our parade spot, and, uh, and it was fine. But I mean, what an incredible day um, celebrating. And how good is this for our city? I mean, Kansas City on display uh, to the nation is, is an incredible place. And uh, the, the jobs that that will create, the energy that it's fostered, the unity that it's already fostered. We went and saw a movie out in Olathe yesterday. Um, and Everywhere in the movie theater, there was people wearing royals caps and shirts and hoodies. And it's just, the city has been painted uh, blue. And regardless of whether you're a sports fan, right? And this is not just a, I'm a big baseball fan phenomenon. Everyone in Kansas City has been excited about the, the royals. I mean, to be standing there unified with, with 800,000 strangers um, marveled at the beauty that God has given us in our city to have that, a sea of blue, and, and every one of us with something in common. And it's amazing that something so simple can, can bring us together, and it's going to be truly a day that I don't think uh, anyone who is there will forget that our city will forget for a really long time. And yet, as we made our way home, because we realized quickly that the buses weren't going to be coming to take us back home. There was far too much traffic and congestion. So we started walking, and uh, we walked down Main Street, and we got to Linwood, and we started walking east on Linwood, and we were going to have someone pick us up uh, coming from 71. So we were just walking east on Linwood towards 71 Highway. And I was reminded that as I was walking through those neighborhoods, that what our city still is, it's a city that's it's broken and divided, and no amount of, of royal blue can fix that. I mean, sociologists, you realize sociologists come from all over the country to, to study Kansas City and, and not to study our barbecue or, or the royals, um, but to study how racially and economically um, and d- divided we still are educationally as a city. Um, for example, due to the housing regulations of the last century, regulations that, that we still benefit from, um, there are very clear lines which distinguish which neighborhoods you do want to live in and which ones you don't want to live in, making it very, very difficult even today to, to get out of those neighborhoods if you find yourself there. And I'm not trying to pin all this guilt on us or, or make us feel bad for living in the neighborhood that you do wherever that is in our city. And I'm certainly not trying to spoil the fun of our city because what an incredible week we have had. But I do want to say that these issues are ridiculously complex. And you should be suspicious of anyone who says that they have a clear and simple answer to just fix it all. I actually once heard someone uh, talking about poverty, a uh, poverty expert around both in, in the United States and around the world. And, and he said, you know, look, uh, solving poverty isn't rocket science. He said, oh, it's way harder than rocket science. Um, so here's the one thing I do know, though, is that loving your neighbor means loving the vulnerable. 
Loving your neighbor means loving the vulnerable. And if you've been with us recently, you know we've been in this series called Neighborly Love. And we've been talking about the importance of, of work and money and economics as we love the people around us, as we love our neighbors. And that work is good, that we were created by God to work together, um, to make money, to, to have exchange and to create jobs. That all these things are good that God has created for us to enjoy. But we know in light of sin how quickly we abuse powerful prey on the weak, that businesses can abuse their employees or customers of the planet, that entire systems often work together to prevent the flourishing of the vulnerable. And then even though we've called the free market the, the best bad system that we have, it's certainly rife with re- abuse and opportunity for corruption and manipulation. And when the Bible talks about injustice, which it does over and over again, it almost always refers to economic injustice. Either taking something from someone or inhibiting the flourishing of others or even just turning a blind eye to the problems around you. It's all injustice. And we forget this because one of the primary reasons, uh, but one of the primary reasons that the Israelites were thrown out of their homes, cast into exile, was because of their callousness towards the vulnerable, towards the poor in their city and how they exploited them. And so that's what the prophet Amos is writing about here in the passage that Carissa read for us. He writes to warn God's people about the impending judgment that's coming. So I go ahead and invite you to turn to the book of Amos this morning, and uh, go ahead and feel free to use the table of contents uh, on this one, because even if you've grown up going to church your whole life, you probably haven't spent a lot of time in the book of Amos lately. So just turn to the front, find the table of contents, uh, and then look to the book of Amos in the Old Testament. And we're going to be looking at Amos chapter 5 in particular. So turn there. And, and what we're going to see clearly in these verses is that if you want to love your neighbor, you have to see the vulnerable You have to be the vulnerable. We'll explain what I mean by that in a minute. You have to be the vulnerable, and then you have to stand with the vulnerable. So if you want to love your neighbor, you have to see the vulnerable, be the vulnerable, and then stand with the vulnerable. So first you have to see the vulnerable, but but who are the vulnerable? Andy Crouch, he's a great writer on culture and power. He, he, He writes this, he says, the vulnerable are those who because of the distorted reality of human societies are most at risk of not flourishing. Vulnerable are those who are most at risk of of not flourishing, not becoming what they're meant to be. So you want to jot something down, just say the vulnerable are those who are least likely to flourish. The vulnerable are those who are least likely to flourish. And you, you can be vulnerable because of your age, because you're young, or because you're old, because you're unborn. Uh, you can be vulnerable because of your language, or your race, your gender, your sexuality, your marital status. You can be vulnerable because of the neighborhood or the country that you live in. Uh, you can be vulnerable because you have a mental or psychological or a physical disability. But the way that our city has been shaped, for many of us, it's easy to avoid seeing the vulnerable. And so it's also subtly easy to think that then somehow we're sort of off the hook. But Amos won't let us get away with that because, uh, like us, Amos wrote in a time of great economic prosperity. And clearly, you know, our country has been through a recession. But on the global stage, and for, for most of us here in this room, we experience relative economic prosperity. 
And again, for those with power, and again, that's most of us have some degree of power, especially in the time that Amos is right, things couldn't be better for those in power. And it'd be very easy to forget the forgotten. And the thing is here is it isn't just individuals in Amos's day who were taking advantage of other individuals and making them impoverished. It was actually entire systems designed to keep the rich rich and the poor poor. So if you've turned to Amos chapter 5, look at verses 10 through 12. It says, they hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. So basically Amos is saying, if anyone speaks out against injustice, they're, they're hated. Therefore, because you trample on the poor, and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy at the gate. Again, Amos is saying, look, the judgment is, is coming because you've abused the poor and the righteous and the needy. That's what he's saying to the nation of Israel. Uh, this isn't one person taking from another. This isn't just someone robbing someone else. It's, it's a group of powerful people redefining justice so that only that small group benefits. John Schneider, in his fantastic book, The Good of Affluence, he writes about Amos's situation specifically, and he says this, the political order was a monarchy gone over into tyranny, and the social economy, mainly based on the marketing of commodities, was completely under the control of the ruling elite. These rulers of Israel were in nearly omnipotent position of being able to set rates of taxation, fix prices, and generally bully their way around the economic precincts of the nation. Now, that isn't exactly the situation that we live in today in 2015 in Kansas City, but I think for us, what so often happens among those of us who have is that we tend to attribute poverty only to individualistic terms rather than thinking systemically. And the Bible does describe poverty in terms of the individual. And last week, uh, Paul in his message on work and the Proverbs talked a lot about, and Proverbs talks a lot about the, the sin of sloth and of laziness and, and how we ought to work hard and that those things really matter. But Amos doesn't leave it there, and neither should we, because there are entire systems, including in our city, that also contribute deeply to the vulnerable remaining vulnerable. And in fact, the Bible actually reveals sort of three, at least three, main causes for poverty. The first is economic injustice and oppression. So this is unjust social conditions and the treatment of, of people that keeps them in poverty. Um, Tim Keller actually points out that the, the main Hebrew word that gets translated the poor in the Old Testament means wrongfully oppressed. So that's the first thing. Uh, the second cause that the Bible gives for, for reasons that people are in poverty is circumstantial calamity. So this is natural disasters, um, things that just come upon you from the outside that keep people in poverty. So think about Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans that affected deeply some of the poorest neighborhoods of that city that, that perpetuated poverty there. Or, or think about earthquakes or droughts around the world, that these events keep people in poverty. 
And then the third cause that you see in Scripture as you look through the whole of the Bible is that you see personal failure. One's own personal sin and failure can keep them in poverty. I mean, we make bad decisions. Poor people make bad decisions. Oftentimes, those of us who have can make poor decisions that don't end up affecting us as much um, because we have more of a cushion to make bad decisions. But look, all of us make bad decisions, and sometimes that's a reason that you're in poverty. But here's the thing. When you look at the Bible and the examples that it gives, it's almost never just solely one of those things. They're almost always intertwined to some extent. There isn't just one single reason that someone's in poverty. But the trouble is, as people, we tend to think we want to find the one cause, and we think in terms of just one cause. And so conservatives tend to mainly think of the problem as personal failure, personal sin, and as a result, then they tend to be often then motivated by compassion. But that leads to paternalism and patronizing, in their approach to working with the poor. Liberals, on the other hand, mainly see the problem as injustice and oppression and are motivated by anger and indignation. But this leads to, to bitterness and to, to frustration and hatred. Actually, at the, bo- at the end, both views become self-righteous. One blames the poor for everything. The other blames the rich for everything. I love how how Tim Keller explains this. He says, a conservative ideology will be far too impatient and probably too harsh with a poor family and won't be cognizant of the more invisible social cultural factors contributing to the problems. A liberal ideology will not put enough emphasis on repentance and personal change. And so all of us here this morning, whether you find yourself uh, more politically conservative or progressive, wherever you find yourself, we need to recognize that there are multiple causes and that poverty is complex when it comes to the vulnerable. But let me give you just an example of systemic injustice. So a Peruvian economist uh, led a research study to challenges, to study the challenges for an impoverished person in Peru to start a small business in Lima, the capital of Peru. And this is what they found. In order to obtain legal authorization to start a small business, it took one person working six hours a day for 289 days at a cost of $1,200, that's three years' salary for a poor person in Lima, to start a business to get out of poverty. So, I mean, it's essentially impossible for that to happen for a poor person. And add to that the lack of property rights in most of the developing world. So, for example, our partners in Kenya uh, who do work in northeastern Kenya were able to purchase a a piece of land uh, to build a training center. But immediately as that money changed hands, there was challenges because they couldn't get a legal document, a title that said they actually own that land. And so they had people encroaching onto it, starting to do other kinds of building And it took a long time for them to finally get a legal document that was recognized that said, yes, this land on these boundaries really belongs to us. We actually did pay for this. And we tend to take that for granted, that if you buy a house or you you buy land for a business or whatever, that you have documentation that says, I bought this, and that no one else can come and and build here. And there's ramifications for that, because if you can't prove you own the land, if you're a business, then you can't get a loan based off of that land to start a business. And and you just, you can't blame one person for that, but rather it's an entire system that forces people to remain in poverty. 
closer to home after 250 years of a history in our country of, of having people enslaved, 90 years of Jim Crow, housing development codes that created massive neighborhoods now filled with crime and poverty, of, of helping tactics that often did more demoralizing than empowering, failing school systems, centuries of being told and treated as if you were worthless because of the color of your skin. It, it, to, to only blame the system, yes, would be naive and short-sighted. But to only blame the individual is also shamefully irresponsible. And so the question for us is this, is, is do we see the vulnerable? Are we looking for the overlooked? Are, are we putting ourselves in places where, where we can actually see those who are at risk of not flourishing? Um, over sabbatical, I joined the, the Cleaver YMCA at, at Gregory and Truce, just because it's the closest Y, it's right in our neighborhood. And uh, I, I was there this week working out, and I saw a group of, of elderly uh, and disabled men and women participating in an exercise class together. And I was so thankful that the Y is serving them, because if you're, you're older, disabled as a, as a person, it's one of the, you're one of the most vulnerable populations in our city. But I realized in seeing that so often, I, I don't even see those people in my daily rhythms. Are you looking for the overlooked on your block, in your school, in the next zip code over? But second, we not only have to see the vulnerable, we actually have to, to be the vulnerable as well, um, which seems really counterintuitive, and maybe you're like, Bill, I don't even really know what that means. What does it mean to be the vulnerable? Let, let me explain, and this is, this is vital, because if we don't understand our own vulnerability, all of our efforts to help will end up flowing subtly from a place of superiority that makes us into a savior, we're often not conscious of that happening, but until we recognize how deeply vulnerable we are, all of our efforts to help and make change will subtly flow out of a position of thinking that we have and that we can be a savior. It's not just fixing broken people, it's fixing us too. And until we recognize our own desperation, any attempt will likely cause more harm than good. You see, for the people Amos is addressing, they are blissfully unaware of the trouble that they're in. They have no idea how vulnerable they are. So Amos tells them in verse 18, he says, Woe to you who would desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord come? Basically, the day of the Lord is the day that God is going to come and be judged. And they are saying, God, come and be judged. And Amos is saying, look, you don't want that because he's going to judge you. It's going to be darkness and not light. You think the day of God's judgment is going to be good for you, but no, Amos says, it's not going to be. You're the one that God is coming for. For God says in verse 21, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies and all your sacrifices. And then in verse 23, it says, take away from me the noise of your songs. Basically, God says, look, for you people in Israel, this is what he's saying through Amos, who are oppressing the poor in the gate every day, who are bribing, who are doing this, I'm sick of hearing you on Sunday singing and praising me when on Monday you go and oppress the poor. And maybe you're thinking, but this isn't us, Bill. I mean, we're, we're not doing these things. And that's probably true for most of us. 
But there's actually two kinds of injustice that Amos attacks in the book. And there's the obvious, those who are directly exploiting the vulnerable. And if you are here this morning and you are happening to do that, I mean, well, good grief, like, stop doing that. Um, I mean, don't do that. I mean, whether it's your, your little sister and you're just picking on her because you're bigger than she is, or it's your friend because she's less attractive than you are, or if you're uh, the people that you work with who don't have as much power or seniority as you, I mean, s- stop doing that. If you are in a position where you're actually directly oppressing someone, don't do that anymore. Um, that could be your big application from, from Amos this morning. But Amos also condemns those who benefit from the exploitation of the weak. Like, they're not the ones doing it, but they get a nice kickback from it, or they experience benefit from it happening, even if they're not the ones actually doing it. And most of us have no idea the ways we benefit from the injustice of others. And that's why I hate preaching messages like this, because I don't want to think about that stuff. I, 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 don't, I just don't. I don't want to think about how I benefit or I'm complicit in the unfair treatment of others. That's really uncomfortable. I don't like doing it, but, but I know that I am. Um, so, for example, immigration, if you listen to this quote from the New York Times about a year ago, it says, there are many ways to debate immigration, but when it comes to economics, there isn't much of a debate at all. Nearly all economists of all political persuasions agree that immigrants, those who are here legally or not, benefit the economy overall. This means that, that well, most of us here this morning have, have money in our wallet to benefit in some way from the immigrants that are in our country, even while often their exportation goes unchecked. Or, or even think about pornography for that matter. And for those of you who, who are stuck in that mess, it often does feel like a victimless thing, and yet you're fueling an industry that leads to human trafficking, Look, if you're, if you're bent out of shape about modern-day slavery, the first thing you need to do is say no to the sex trade on your computer and not buy the lie that the women or even the men want to be there. So do you see and understand the ways that, that all of us, whether we want to or mean to or not, are caught up in systems, structures, our our own sinfulness that make us complicit in the oppression of other people here and around the world. And frankly, if you're already feeling overwhelmed by this, and if you're thinking, gosh, well, I should have just stayed home and break the leaves this morning. This is not (laughs) what I wanted to come and hear and talk about this morning. Uh, I'm with you. I wish I could have stayed home and raked the leaves this morning. The back is crazy. Uh, I got to the front the other day, but the backyard is still covered in leaves. But believe me, I I wish I were home doing that because this is overwhelming to me. This is not the stuff that I would just choose to preach on, but, it, but it's there. It's in God's Word. And so perhaps the most important next step from us, for all of us in the summit, and for most of us, is, is to repent and to lament. To, to repent our, from our lack of awareness of the ways that we benefit, the ways that we're guilty, but also then to lament with the vulnerable, to cry out to God with them, to say, God, how long, O Lord? <laughs> Will you allow these situations, these circumstances to continue? Because often we rush to solutions, but before we can solve anything, we've got to weep with the broken, and we have to own our own brokenness in the midst of that. To cry out over the 3,000 abortions daily in the U.S., the 105 murders in the Kansas City metro area so far this year. In fact, Paul Brandis, our associate pastor, told me just last night someone was murdered, shot and killed just two blocks from their house. So I guess it's murder 106. 
You see, when we recognize our own vulnerability, we repent and we lament. When we recognize our own vulnerability, how, how broken, how weak we truly are, we repent and we lament. And when we've begun that, and, and only when we've begun to do that, are we ready to stand with the vulnerable? So see them, be them, and then stand with them. Because loving your neighbor means loving the vulnerable. So if you go back to verse 24, Amos says, But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And this begins individually, personally, caring about people uh, more than we care about making or saving money. Longing for all to flourish. And, And not just those who are part of our family or our tribe or our group, but even those we disagree with. Because Jesus says, look, this is what the gospel does. It actually makes you love your enemies. He says, look, everyone loves the people who are like them. When the gospel really begins to get into your life, you even love those who are your enemies. So how do we actually go about doing this? What does it look like to do this work of justice? Well, Tim Keller, again, describes three levels of doing justice. He's got a great book called Generous Justice, and he has sort of three levels of doing justice. The first is relief. That's, that's feeding the hungry, giving shelter to the homeless, providing some sort of safety net for the most desperately vulnerable in our city and around the world. But it's a Band-Aid, not a solution, right? But sometimes you have to give the Band-Aid. You have to stop the bleeding, save a, someone's life in that moment. But as evangelicals, that's what we've tended to stop. So we, we're good at giving monies. Evangelicals as a population, if you study generosity, are some of the most generous people in our cult society. We, we, we're good at giving money, but we tend to stop there. But, but money is not the solution. In fact, Oxford-trained African economist Demisa Moyo, she's widely respected, and she argues that foreign aid is actually one of the main causes of continuing poverty in Africa. That's because money is needed for relief, but it almost never addresses the underlying problems. Which brings us to the second level of doing justice, which is development. Actually making things better so that the relief money isn't needed. I mean, at home here, that could be tutoring a child who's not getting help with her homework. It could be establishing a, a business in an impoverished neighborhood or a low-income neighborhood to provide jobs. It could be supporting a child through Compassion International or World Vision or any number of, of programs that not just provide relief to children, but actually do comprehensive community development in their neighborhoods. And then the third level, so you have relief, development. The third one is social reform. This is actually the the long, slow work of changing laws and systems. Like William Wilberforce with the slave trade in England. Laws that make human trafficking harder, abortion more difficult. Uh, Laws that help that guy in Lima, Peru, and so many other countries start businesses and and get uh, titles to land that protect immigrants and other minorities. And yes, this takes political action. And I think sometimes we can be, and rightly, wary of that. Because often, I think, evangelicals have abused or not done, engaged politically well. But just because something's political doesn't have to be partisan. 
And we're called to work for social reform, which means working through legal systems. And that's, that's inherently political. But there's a way to do that that isn't partisan, that doesn't say one particular party or group or person is becoming the savior of all things. So how will we stand with the vulnerable? As a church, we want to be a part of all three of these, of, of relief, development, social reform, both locally and globally. And I'd encourage you to check out our website to explore different ways that we're connected with partners who are doing that kind of work here in our city, as well as our partners who are doing that around the world in different places. And we plant churches in neighborhoods for the good of those neighborhoods. And we don't want to isolate ourselves from the problems our world of our world, nor do we want to naively believe that we can easily answer to ridiculously complex scenarios. And we don't want to make these issues all about politics either because these are fellow human beings made in the image of God. And these issues of, of economic injustice and poverty and oppression, these, these were biblical issues long before they were political buzzwords. And I realize that our individual responses this morning may be very different for all of us depending on where we're at, what our station of life is, where we work, how much influence we have, all that. Just don't ignore what Amos is calling us to. So here's another easy next step. I, I'd encourage you, uh, we have all the content from our Common Good 2015 conference is now posted and available through the, our Right Now Media channel. Um, and you'll be getting an email uh, shortly, if you haven't already, about how you can access uh, that content. And at very least, uh, please watch Brian Fickert's first talk. It's probably the best 45 minutes of uh, discussion of poverty that I've ever heard. Brian is an economist uh, as well as a theologian, and it's so helpful. As well as another talk there, Stan Archie's discussion of race and Kansas City. I mean, all, all talks uh, that are there are great, but I would start with those two. And the reality is most of us here are flourishing, at least economically. I mean, again, this isn't true for every single one of us. For most of us, we have enough money to get by. We have, have had or have access to education, influence. I, essentially, we have power. And that in and of itself is not a bad thing. In fact, it's a really good thing. But the question is always, who am I using my power for? You see, the question we always have to ask about power is who is flourishing because I have power? Our goal shouldn't be to try to give up power, but to use the power that God has entrusted with us to see that the vulnerable flourish. So who's flourishing because you have power? Just, just you or are you using that not just for your own gain, but so that also others may flourish. Now, I'm sure that all this feels overwhelming and uncomfortable, at least it does to me uh, this morning. But this is why we have to remember that we are vulnerable. Every one of us. And the good news of the Gospels is that Jesus stands with you in fact, Jesus only stands with the vulnerable, because until you recognize you are vulnerable, Jesus doesn't have anything to offer to you. Because you were a prisoner until Christ freed you. You were under astronomical spiritual debt until Christ paid it all. You were in a broken spiritual neighborhood and world until Christ entered it and suffered alongside of you. You were an orphan until God adopted you. You were a widow until God married you. You were an immigrant until God welcomed you. He loved us, seeing our desperate vulnerability, our brokenness, and our shame. 
For we were internally impoverished, impoverished and no amount of relief, development, or social reform could possibly save us. And Jesus didn't just stand with us. He actually stands in our place on the cross. He pays our debt. He removes our guilt and our shame. And he doesn't just give us a pass. He actually then adopts us into his family, giving us a brand new identity and hope. See, loving our neighbor means loving the vulnerable because loving Jesus means loving what he loves, which is you the person next to you in the pew, and every other desperately vulnerable person in the world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would continue to help us see our own vulnerability and then rejoice in the good news that you have rescued us. And that out of that joy, not out of guilt, not out of a sense of obligation, but out of the deep joy of our own rescue. Would you help us to know how to stand with, to see, uh, to love um, those who are at most in danger of not flourishing, of not becoming all that you have designed for them to be. Forgive us for where we're, we're blind. Help us to understand the next steps because it's just so big. Help us to understand just the one next step of obedience you'd have us take. In Jesus' name. Amen.